The overall theme, if you look at your papers there, and unfortunately, the, I've got the alignment wrong, I think, because you, the top of that, that line is kind of off. But it should say up there the theme, and if you can barely read it, tell me what the theme is. Trust me. Trust me. Yeah, drawing out God's word is, is the series lesson, and then the theme is trust me. That's, that's what... We're going to look at from Genesis to Exodus. Trust me. If you can't read that there, write it down somewhere because that's the theme for this week's lesson. The overall theme is trust me. The big question we're going to ask and hopefully answer, or maybe we're not going to answer. Maybe you're going to struggle with it this week. Maybe you're going to wrestle with it this week. Is God can be viable. And a lot of people think God is viable. A lot of people will say, yeah, I believe there's a God. He can be out there. He, he can do something. He's viable. There's, there's a possibility that he might, might be okay, might work. But can he be reliable? Can I trust him? Can I put my full weight on him? That's the essence here of trust me. Yeah, God's viable. But can he be reliable? Can I really rely on him to be there for me every day and take care of me? That's what we're going to hopefully answer this morning. And if you go over, if you got your Bibles this morning, we're not going to be much in, in certain scriptures because we're covering a whole load of scriptures this morning. But if you look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, just, to, just to kind of jump off from this point of trust me. When I think of trust me, I think of Hebrews 11.1. 1. As what do we always say comes from Hebrews 11.1? 1? What is it that, that we say, this is where you see the definition of faith? This is, when you want to know what faith is, I mean, it gives you a definition, a kind of a, this is what faith is. Now, faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Man. And then it goes on to describe a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament who are heroes of faith. Who are men and women who did what God asked them to do and lived the life God asked them to live. What's interesting there... The assurance there, that word, my version says, at least says assurance. There's an alternate translation there is, is a substance or evidence, substance. It does kind of go back to the first century substance, concrete substance that they used to build with. When you think about that, he's saying that faith is what? This concrete substance that you can put your weight on. That they're going to build with, and it's going to be stable, and it's going to be foundational, and you're going to be able to put your weight on that. So when we talk about trusting me in these, this lesson today, God is saying, you can put your full weight on me. You can, you can put everything on me, and I'm okay. I will not fail you. But oftentimes, I think in the Bible, and even in my life, maybe yours, I've said, I'm not sure I can put my full weight on you. I'm, not, I'm, I'm doing that, that, you know, how you check the water to see if it's... If it's cold or if it's hot, before you jump into the pool, you kind of put your toe on that substance and say, can I really trust you? Can I really put my full weight on you? I'm going to kind of try you out. And people in the Bible have done that over and over again. And it's no surprise, I think, that we do that over and over again because we're human beings, just like people in the Bible. Well, they're there. Okay. So let's get started here. Where in the world are we going to start? In the beginning. Thank you. 
Thank you. Oh man, doesn't that guy look good? It's kind of it's kind of weird. Anyway, okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, you start with a circle like this. In the beginning, in that square, the top left square, you'd put this, this circle if you're following what I'm drawing. If not, if you want to make a detailed drawing of earth, make a detailed drawing of earth. If you want to write earth in there, I don't care. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does he make heavens and the earth for? I mean, why does he go through all this trouble to make all of this stuff? It seems like God is a God of, well, we know he's a God of love. We know he's a God who who wants to share. He wants a relationship with the creatures that he made. So it seems like he, he wants a relationship. He wants someone to share this creation with. So what does he do? He makes the heavens and the earth. And in my drawing, I'm going to erase this part here because I'm going to draw on this drawing. Makes the heavens and the earth. And then he makes all the creatures. And then he makes man, right? Then he makes Adam. And that, that's exactly what Adam looked like. I have it on good authority. That's exactly what Adam looked like. Very pale and very fat. No. <laughs> anyway, he, he makes Adam. And, and he said throughout his creation, as he's making these things, he says, this is good. This is good. This is good. What happens when he gets to man? Is there any difference in his? Very good. Women, I want you to remember that is very good. Now, and I think he's describing both in that, that case, not just man. He's describing man and woman. These, these are very good. But, but in Genesis 1, we see him making man. And we see him later on saying, Adam, I want you to, to name the animals. He's, he's got all these things on the earth, and he's saying, I want you to name all these things. I want you to go through them. I want you to give names to them. And Adam does this, and he goes through, and he names all these animals. And at the end of all of this stuff, what does Adam say? And what is he thinking to himself? There's nobody here that fills the void for me. There's nobody here that, 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 will, that will do what I need done. Sure, I've given names to all of these things, and they're great, God. But they look like they already have, uh, have their partners, but, and none of them are really fitting with me. So God says what to Adam? He says, hey, trust me that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I've known, I, in fact, I, I said this last time I went through this. I think he did that on purpose. Just to show Adam, look, I've made all of this, but this is not exactly what is going to help you. I want you to recognize that you need something else. And so I'm going to lead you through all of this stuff so that you can recognize you need something else. And then when you recognize that, I'm going to say, okay, now I'm going to take care of that problem. Uh, trust me, I'm going to fix that. So we got Adam here, right? So now... Well, what we're going to do here is we're going to make Eve. Now he creates Eve. You'll know her by the long hair and the fuller lips. There you go. There's Eve. So Adam looks at her and says, yes, that is the one for me. That is the one for me. No helper for me. God says, trust me. At the very beginning, God is saying, trust me. What did they trust him for? Adam and Eve are trusting God from the very beginning too, aren't they? He says, look, I'm going I'm to take care of you. I want you to work in the garden, like our, my brother pointed out in Sunday morning class. Man has always been given something to do. From the very beginning, God says, I'm going to ask you to work and keep. And, and an interesting side note, I'm going to 
I'm going to give you these things throughout. So if you want to write these in your notes, these are something that you can take with you and maybe study on each day. I haven't scheduled out days for them, but take this and study this later. Look at the words work and keep. And I've, I've already talked about this on Wednesday, some Wednesday nights, I think, because it, it fascinates me. But the words, the very words that God uses there, work and keep, are not necessarily just gardening words. They're more priestly-like words. And they're used later on for priestly duties. God is, from the very beginning, has given man something to do. And it's not just getting your hands dirty in the ground, although that's a part of it. It has a bigger meaning. So God is saying, trust me for everything you need. Trust me for all of these things. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to put everything in the garden that you need. I'm going to take care of your needs. I've already taken care of your one need here. I've given you a help me, Eve, and she's going to take care of you. But there is a stipulation there, isn't there? God does say something like, I've given you all of this, and it's all good. And now it's all fine. Okay, so God has created all of this for their good. He's put them in the garden. He's given them everything they need to survive. But he says, one thing I want you to avoid. I've got one stipulation. In all of this, I've got one stipulation. What is that stipulation? The tree. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, right? Yeah. Don't do it. So we got the tree here. Second picture, right across, right next to that one, will be the tree. This is the one thing I want you to avoid. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else is good. Everything else is great. They're working and tending. They they're, they're <laughs> seem to be in communion with, with God and it's one thing. One thing. Avoid this. And they do for a while, it seems. Maybe they do for, I don't know how long exactly. There's kind of a hard way to keep track of time in Genesis there. But they must for a while. But then what happens? Someone comes along. Satan comes along. And he says what to them, basically? Yeah. Did God really say that? There's the, that's kind of an ugly looking snake, but hey, Satan's ugly to begin with. So Satan comes along and he says, basically, you can't trust God. You can't trust him because he's not telling you the truth. He's holding something back from you. That stuff is really good. And Eve looks at the tree and she says, that is really good. That looks really, really good. It's very pleasing to the eye. And Satan is not, not uh, he helps that. He, he fosters that and says, yeah. You cannot trust God. It comes down again to a trusting. Are you going to trust me that what I say is good is good and what I say to avoid, avoid? Or are you going to trust the serpent that says you can't trust the one who created you? And Adam and Eve end up making the decision to not trust God. I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to trust that this thing is something to be avoided. And I'm going to eat of this tree. And so they eat of that tree. And what happens? Boom. Yeah, out of, out, you're cast out. And this is the first time in, in history that blame gets assigned. Man points the finger immediately to woman, which will be a common trait on down through history. Right? And woman points the finger at the serpent. It's not my fault. It's hers. It's not my fault. It's 
the serpents. It's somebody else's fault that I didn't do what I was supposed to do. No, it's, it's, it's both of their faults. They're, they're responsible for that decision. They did not trust God. And there's your first... In fact, Eve, Eve brought up the first, the devil made me do it kind of, kind of thing. He made me do it. No. He didn't make you do it. He put that, he put that thought in your mind. He, he fostered it. He made it grow. But no, he did not. He did not make you do that. Here's another thing that for this section of Scripture, something to look at closer during the week sometime when you have a chance. Look at the Hebrew in chapter 3. And the closeness of verse 6. You know, oftentimes we think the husband was far away. I'm not so sure the husband was that far away. The, the, the Hebrew indicates he's pretty close to that conversation and that he did nothing about it. And this husband failed in his duties off the bat to be the husband that he should be. <laughs> yes. It was all of our fault. I mean, it was human beings. It was, it was woman and man together making the decision not to trust God. It's a joint effort. And it's still a joint effort. Still a joint effort. And we make that decision over and over again. Do we trust God or do we not trust God? And he's saying, trust me. And we're saying, I don't think I can. You're hiding something from me. You're keeping something from me. And he's saying, no, I'm not. But I, you don't trust me. Boom. Yes. And when you're looking at that this week, look at verses 3, 11, and then look at verses, verse, 1 John 1, 9. How God is saying, I'm asking you to say the same thing with me. I'm asking you to agree with me that sin is sin and wrong is wrong. And that we didn't. Human beings didn't. So, you go from the creation of the world, okay, to the tree. The knowledge of good and evil, the, the tempter coming in there and, and telling Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. And she says, no, I can't trust God. He's hiding something from me. And Adam says the same thing. Can't trust God. He's hiding something from us. We've got to figure out what's going on. They get kicked out of the garden. And the generations start to grow. People start to populate the earth. Genesis 4, it starts to track two sons, Cain and Abel. And there's a big problem right there in Genesis 4. And again, another thing to look at this week, if you can. When it comes down to the, the problem with the sacrifice in Cain, there's a bigger problem, I think, than what he sacrificed. As in Hebrews 11, there's a key to why that sacrifice was really wrong. And, and the basis, I think, of what was really going on with him and his sacrifice and his, his, his relationship with God. Look at that. Read Hebrews 11, find Cain in there, and find out what it says about him sacrificing. Go back to Genesis 4, put those two together, and look at those things, because I think it boils down again to faith and trust. But here, you've got these, these brothers. You know the story about the brothers. And, and the generations keep growing, and they keep, keep building more and more and more people. And what happens when we reach Genesis 6? All of these people are on the earth, and the earth is great and Loving God and, and in great communion with God and everything's going good, right? Wickedness everywhere. And God looks down there and says, I can't find hardly anybody. There's one person, one family, one, one group of people that says, okay, that, that guy. And what's his name? Noah. So in Genesis 6, next thing, 
God says to Noah, I've noticed who you are. You're a righteous man. Can you trust me? And if you can, if you could trust me, I want you to build me a big boat. And that's a big trust issue. I mean, coming to Noah and saying, I want you to build this thing for me. And Noah saying, I have no idea what that thing is. I have no idea what it would be used for. It's foreign to me. He's saying, trust me. He's saying, Noah, I need you to trust me. Build this because I'm fed up with what's happening on the earth and I'm about to wipe it out with a flood. So build this thing. Can you trust me, Noah? That's, that's what God is saying to Noah right there. Can you trust me? He finds one family because I'm going to flood the earth. So God does flood the earth, doesn't he? He floods the earth. Everything's dead around there. Dead bodies, dead, dead animals floating everywhere. Things are, things are ugly, but one family is safe inside. Eight people saved through water there. And what happens when they're getting off the boat? God says, you trusted me. Now I want you to go, like we talked about this morning, go and repopulate the earth. It's almost a, a reiteration of what happened at the beginning. Repopulate the earth. I mean, populate everywhere and spread throughout the earth. Go everywhere. Spread throughout the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And so that you can trust me, I'm going to give you a sign. And what's the sign that he gives them? A rainbow. He gives them a rainbow in the sky saying, you trusted me, and now I want to show you, I'm going to make a covenant. What's interesting, this covenant is not just with Noah and his family. It's with all the animals too. Everything, everything living on the earth. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with every living thing. I'm going to say, this rainbow is going to be my guarantee that this is not going to happen again. This way is not going to happen again. So he says, trust me. Can you trust me? Here, make another interesting note. I'm saying interesting because it's interesting to me. Make a note for another day to study on this here. Genesis 6, verse 14. Look at the word pitch. Look at that Hebrew word pitch and what its meaning is. And notice how it's used in the ark. And then how it's used in other places. I think you'll find that very interesting. The Hebrew word for pitch there and the meaning of that pitch. The fact that it brings even more symbolism, more meaning to eight saved through the ark. I'll give you a, a glance into that. It, it means atonement, making atonement. Just a quick glance into that. So, they get off the earth, uh, the earth, they get off the ark and go on to the earth. After being on the ark for a very long period of time, God tells them to repopulate the earth, go be fruitful and multiply. And they do. They go out. They're fruitful. They multiply. They start growing again. He tells them to spread, to, to go cover the earth, you know, to, to be everywhere, really. Well, what do they do? They kind of congregate, don't they? They kind of get together and say, we're, we're better together than we are separate. We're more safe. We're more secure. We can do better things together. And in, in some ways, that makes sense. But God is, is not liking the way this is working out because if you go over there to that, that part of Genesis, you're going to see that, that this is another thing that I want you to look at this week. As they're, as they're getting things together, they start thinking about the us's. 
let us, let us, let us. They say let us three different times in that text. And they say, and God says, let us once in that text. They say, let us do this, let us do that, because we are, we are good, we are great, we're going to be greater. And they start to build these, these things called ziggurats, right? Or might be called a ziggurat, maybe they found these kind of things. But for our illustration, I'm going to use something that kind of looks like a ziggurat. And that's, that's kind of what, what, well, that doesn't look exactly like it looked. But anyway, what is this called in the Bible? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. All these people are getting together. All these people are trying to build this thing. And God does what? He confuses their speech, doesn't he? You can't tell what's going on. Nobody can communicate with each other unless you're speaking the same language. So they start to to separate. They start to to group up into groups. And they start to move out because I can't understand you. You can't understand me. But I can understand him. So now we're we're good together. And we're going to move on. He confuses the language. And he spreads out the people. He's asked them to trust him. But they're not trusting him at this point. They're trusting themselves. Let us, let us, let us. They've forgotten about the Almighty. And they started to trust in the goodness of themselves. And God is trying to say, okay, I've got to get this back into your head again. That you don't trust yourself. You trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. And you're not trusting me at this point. So we're going to do something. We're going to separate you. I'm going to confuse your languages. I'm going to spread you all over the earth because you don't want to spread yourself. You're going to be spread throughout the whole earth with new languages. And as the people spread, as things go out, as things happen, all the people to choose from, in Genesis chapter 12, who does God choose? Abram. Chooses Abram. A man who lived where? Earl of the Chaldees. Chooses Abram. He has a beard, of course. All good men of the Bible and today have beards, so he has a beard. <laughs> Abraham from Ur. And God says what to Abraham? Right off the bat, is he asking him to trust him? Yeah, he's saying, I want you to move from where you're comfortable to a land that you don't know anything about. I'm asking you to trust me, Abram. Leave your family and come and go with me. And let me lead you to a land you know nothing about. Trust me and move. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And along the way, he shows distrust, doesn't he? He takes his wife. He takes other people. Lot kind of attaches himself to him. And along the way, he lies, doesn't he? Lies about his wife. She's not my wife, she's my sister. Gets himself in trouble. He also lies. God has told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. And these people are old. They're not really in the childbearing years, are they? Even for back then. So, another area where they distrust God, they have Ishmael. Which is a product of his wife's handmaiden. They have Ishmael. But God says, that's not what I wanted. I'm going to bring about the offspring that I wanted you to have. Not you. I'm going to do it. So after Ishmael is born, he finally, they finally, patient enough, and God brings about the child of promise that he said he would have. 
Ishmael, and then who? Isaac. Isaac, because he's, the name means laughter, because when, they, when God told them, they laughed. Yeah, she laughed. That's not going to happen. I'm old. Hebrews 11, again, gives another good insight into this relationship here. And even Romans 4 gives a good insight into this relationship here about their faith here. So God is saying, trust me, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring about the offspring. You tried to do it. That's not what I asked for. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to make you this great nation full of all of these people. It's going to be as numerous as the stars, numerous as the sand on the seashore. It's going to be a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And we know, of course, that that's bigger than just the Jewish race. It's, it's much bigger than that. It includes us today. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. But God says to Abram, trust me. And Abram says, okay. But he fails along the way. But again, that's a good message for us, isn't it? Because I've said yes to God. I will trust you. And I failed along the way. But God doesn't say, okay, Robert, I'm through with you. Just like he did to Abram. He says, okay, pick yourself up. Let's try it again. Trust me. All right. And we go from here. From this section here, we're in Genesis 12 at this point, or around Genesis 12, and then Genesis 17, way up in there, because all these children have come into the picture, and maybe even a little beyond at this point. Okay, good. All the way through here, then we get to some offspring again. Isaac has an offspring, doesn't he? What's Isaac's offspring's name? Names, excuse me. Jacob and Esau. And these are, these are the ones that we really focus on. For this one, I draw that. Now, why, 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 would, why would I draw that for Jacob? Because of the name. And the fact that it, well, the name, and he grabs his brother in the womb. The name means surplanter, heel grabber. So when I look at this, I think... Jacob, Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the guy who's going to be scheming throughout his life. He grabs the heel of his older brother, even in Romans 9, he talks about before the birth, before any of them did anything wrong, God had chosen already who he wanted to bless, who he wanted to bring the line through. God had already chosen before the babies were even out of the womb. But you see in, in, in Jacob's life that he is wrestling, he is, he is fighting hard, for blessings all over the place. Even though God has already chosen him, he doesn't realize that. He doesn't realize that God is, is bringing that line through him, I think, completely. But God has already chosen him. He's bringing this line through him. He grabs his brother's heel here. He's chosen from birth. But he decides to do what he wants to do. He goes to his brother. He wrestles his birthright blessing, all of that from him, doesn't he? He takes that from him. Then he goes to Laban. He says, I like your daughter. So he works for seven years and he gets what? The daughter he doesn't want. So he works for another seven years, gets the daughter he wants. And Jacob has finally kind of figured out what, it's feel, what it feels like when you have the, the manipulation tables turned on you. Probably didn't feel too good about that. But anyway, he's, he's being manipulated there in Genesis 32. He wrestles with God. When, when you get to this part here, I'm going to draw a scoreboard. He's wrestling with God. 
And he's going to wrestle with him until daybreak, until he blesses him. He holds him until he blesses him. He says, you bless me, bless me. I'm going to hold you until you bless me. And God does bless him, doesn't he? He wrestles with him, touches his hip. And he takes this name that means supplanter, supplanter, schemer, heel grabber. And he changes his name to what? Israel. Changes his name to Israel. For me, that's a 12. That doesn't mean God loses because he's got infinity, of course. But he's 12. Jacob is 12. Now, an interesting note on this section here. This week sometime, look up the difference between blessings and birthrights. Look at, look at why, why, does, why, does he, why is he jockeying for these and what do they mean? The difference between the blessing and the birthright. I'll give you a couple of scriptures if you're taking notes just to kind of look at this week when, when, you, when you're thinking about this. Deuteronomy 21.17. Deuteronomy 21.17 and Genesis 25.23. That's just a couple. You can, you can look at a lot more when it comes to this. But the blessing and the birthright, what, what's the significance of them? Why is, he, why is he fighting so hard for these? What do they mean? Why is Esau so upset? And then think about God's already chosen. He's already chosen the one that's going to carry this name. He's already chosen the one who's going to bring his messianic line through. He's already done that. He's already made that choice. You don't have to grab that heel, Jacob, but he does anyway. And he goes through his period of, tr- of uh, test, or trusting excuse me, trusting God, doesn't he? He goes through that same thing. Am I trustworthy? God asks him. Over and over again. Whew. Am I trustworthy? So now we get down to some of his sons. And of course, we're going to track one of the most famous sons, in this one. Yep, heard his name there. Joseph. For that, what is this? So easily communicated, isn't it? You say Joseph and you draw this and you know that is definitely the coat of many colors. Easily communicated with one picture there. Dad's favorite. Talk about a, a bad family situation there. You got a favorite, and you you let people know that he's your favorite. It just breeds animosity in the family, doesn't it? it? It's it's interesting to see that in the Bible that these families are not the picture perfect families. They, they got their problems. They've got dysfunction. They've got problems in there. And this one, I think, is part of the problem. This is his favorite, and God is communicating to Joseph, isn't he? He's giving him dreams, and Joseph communicates those dreams to his brothers, doesn't he? And what happens when he communicates his dreams to his brothers? Yeah, it makes things worse. They already didn't like him because he's a little punk who their dad really likes. And now he, they're going to bow down to him. He's going to rule over them? I don't think so. Not going to happen. They really want to kill him, don't they? They really want to kill him. They, they're, they're argued out of that. So they decide to throw him down the well. You guys know the story. Tell the dad he's, he's dead. Put the blood on the... On the coat there and, and convince him he gets sold into slavery he gets bought by Potiphar he get, rises to a very good high position in Potiphar's house but then he gets accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife gets thrown into jail rises to a very high position in jail 
And then when these two men that he meets, and he, and he interprets their dream, he says, remember me when you get out, and they do what? Or he, one of them doesn't have to remember, because he's, he's dead. The other guy does need to remember, but he does what? He doesn't remember, does he? That's short memory, short-term memory. I don't remember it. But then he does remember when the Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted, and he says, oh, wait a minute, I remember that guy. He points back to Joseph. Joseph is brought before the king, and the king says, can you do this? He says, yes, I can, but it's God that's doing it, not me. That same God that's let me rot in jail, that same God that's let me be sold into slavery, that same God that has let me go through all these hardships in life, that's the God that will do this for you. He does that, and what happens to him? He rises to the second most powerful seat in all of Egypt, a non-Egyptian. And look at all of that. Think about that for a second, because we've arrived at a different spot in our, in our lesson. Over and over again, people have been not trusting in this picture here, what do you see? I say trust, yes. Trust and trust and trust. In fact, if you look hard enough, you can't find a place where he doesn't trust God. At the end of all of that, when his brothers come and the, because of the famine, and he's getting, giving them the food, and he's, and he's trying to figure out, you know, are they going to recognize me? And then he finally reveals himself, and they're scared that he's going to finally exact revenge on them, which, you know, human nature, maybe that, that's what he'd want to do. But what does he tell them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and his, his meant for good was not just for this family, but was for all of these people. Uh, uh, an interesting thing to look at here, as Joseph has risen to power in this, this nation that is not his, that is nowhere even close to his, he's risen to second in command. Look at the life of Joseph this week. Take a day and look at his life. And compare it to Jesus. It's one of the closest type anti-types that you can find in Jesus and, and him. There is no recorded sin for Joseph. He's a human being, so he made mistakes. But there is no recorded sin. And all you see in his life is trust, trust, trust. No matter what position he was in. Whether he was in jail, or whether he was at Potiphar's house, or whether he was sitting right next to Pharaoh in, in top of the line in Egypt. There was always trust in Joseph's life. Look at that this week. Take a second and explore that maybe. Which leads us to the second to last here. Because after all of this happens and Joseph rises to power and all the people come and live in Egypt, right? They come, they live in Egypt, brings his family, they take the lands that, that are good and all of that stuff. What happens very shortly thereafter? All of a sudden, nobody remembers Joseph anymore. Again, how, how short-term memories we have. You would think there'd be some sort of records about this guy in, in Egypt. But of course, he is a foreigner, so maybe there's not that many records because he is a foreigner. But anyway, if the Bible says a king rises that does not know Joseph. And he sees all of these people in the land that are not Egyptians. And he says, we got a problem on our hands. We got a very big problem on our hands. These people are going to outnumber us, and they could really do something serious to our country. And so he enslaves them, doesn't he? And he has them making bricks and all this stuff. Right? So here's your hay, here's your brick. Classic Egyptian brick. I don't know what a classic Egyptian brick looked like, but that's close enough. 
Egyptian bricks. They're making hay. They're making, or not making hay. They're, they're, well, they might be making hay. They're growing hay, harvesting it, making, making bricks. Then they take things, they make it tougher for them. They make it tougher and tougher and tougher. But there's somebody who rises up. There's somebody who rises up. And what's that man's name? Moses. Moses. This Moses is not an Egyptian. He's saved from death. He's in that river and the the Pharaoh's daughter comes down there, sees him, draws him out, names him Moses, drew him out of the water. He's raised partially with his mother in, in the king's palace. So he's got the best of both worlds there, especially the fact that he didn't die. God is already looking on him with favor. He's already saying, there's something I need him to do. So he's going to make it through. He's going to get through all of this. And I believe Moses' mom is is definitely teaching him and and grooming him because there's something that Moses knows as he gets older. And again, here's another thing for you to check out in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen's making his defense, he talks about Moses and he talks about something that Moses somewhat understood. Why did he understand it? Why did he even think that? That's an interesting question to ask. And then you look back at the account of Moses and what he did with the... Egyptian uh, guard that is, that is beating that slave and he kills him. Well, there's a reason he kills him. And Acts chapter 7 kind of gives you that reason. And then it makes you wonder, what does he know? How does he know it? What is he thinking? But when he does kill that Egyptian slave, what happens? Or Egyptian master, taskmaster. He runs away, doesn't he? Runs away. So he spent 40 years in Egypt. Now he's running away and he's going to spend 40 years there. And then what happens? God shows up in a burning bush there's your bush there's wild flames burning bush God shows up in the burning bush and essentially what is God asking him to do he's saying trust me I want you to do something for me and I want you to trust me that I can give you the power to do it I'm going to show you I'm going to, I'm going to give you what you need to accomplish the mission I'm sending you on but I need you to trust me and Moses comes up with so many excuses as to why he can't do what, he, what, he's, what God is asking him to do. And God, over and over again, says, trust me. Trust me. At the very end of that, God even seems a little bit ticked off. Because he says, who made your mouth? Who are you talking to? I made you. I know what you're capable of. I've watched you. I know what you're capable of. Trust me. Go to the Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, and trust me, and I will take care of you, and I will take care of my people, because I've heard their cries. Trust me. He's been put in a position where he really would have to trust God. He's been put in a position where God is really asking him to throw all into this mission. He's going back as a murderer, and he's going back to demand that the Pharaoh let his people go. And here's where we come to the end of this little tic-tac-toe board of yours. After all of this, and Moses and Aaron are on their way back, and they get to Pharaoh's household, and they, they go through all of these things, what are they? They're asking for Pharaoh to do what? Let my people go. Let my people exit. We want to go. God wants them to go. Let my people go or else. There is an or else to that statement. Because God is not going to be denied. 
what he wants done. And there's going to be ten plagues, right? God sends ten plagues. And each of these plagues does what? Do you guys know what each of these plagues does? Destroys what? They're idols. They're gods. Each one of those plagues attacks the Egyptian gods. And he destroys them systematically. Boom, boom, boom. And, and essentially, he's again saying, even to the Egyptians, who can you trust? Can you trust the gods that you worship? Or can you trust the God who is destroying your gods? Who is overpowering your gods? Which one do you trust? And he's even asking the Egyptians to make a decision. I think he's not just asking his people to make a decision. He's asking the Egyptians to make the same decision. Because he wants all men. He's asking the Egyptians, will you trust me? Choose a side. And the Egyptians do choose a side. Pharaoh chooses a side. He goes back and forth a little while, but he does choose a side. Eventually, though, once you get to the 10th plague, once you get to the 10th plague, he asks something a little different of the people, doesn't he? He says, I want you to get a lamb. And in this, this plague, because every other plague you've kind of sat by and watched. In this plague, you get to participate with me. In this plague, I'm asking for you to participate with me. I'm asking you to get this lamb. I'm asking you to slaughter it at the same time. I'm asking you to, to not only eat it, but also put the blood on what? The doorposts. Because I'm going to pass over. And when I pass over, if the blood is on the doorpost, I will not take the life of the firstborn. But if it is not there, the firstborn will die. And not only the firstborn of human beings, but the firstborn of the animals too. You look at the text, it's firstborn across the board. God is taking no chances here. He's going all out and all in. And he's asking his people to do the same thing. I want you to participate with me here in this Passover. So he's asking for this exodus. He's asking for them to trust him. Now, how much trust is that? You've got this message from Moses and Aaron saying, do this. Trust God that when you do this, your firstborn will not die. I, I don't know about you, but I might be a little nervous that night. I, I still would have done what he said, but I'm still got that. You know, this, this, this angel of death is, is coming through and it's taking the lives of the firstborn. That is, that is, that is intense. But God is saying to each and every one of them, trust me. Trust me. And, and they do. And even some of the Egyptians do. And what happens when they leave? They take some of the Egyptians with them and they plunder the Egyptians just like God said. And they exit. They exodus. There's more exodus that we're going to cover next week. But that is the end of that section. And I want you to notice the theme throughout there is what? Trust. Trust me. The very beginning of the Bible doesn't start with, oh, I'm so great, I've done all this. He shows us what he's done, but the overall message is, trust me. Trust me that I can do what I say I'm going to do, that I am who I say I am, and that's where we're going to leave it today. The answer, or the, the question that we started off with is, God might be what? Viable. But is he Reliable. Now, that's a question for you today. God might be viable, 
but is he reliable? Do I, can I rely on God? I'm going to leave that in your hands today. As you look this week through this lesson, I hope, and you look at some of the things that, that I brought out there and, and maybe dig a little deeper into this, this theme of trust me. Do you trust him? Do you really trust him? Can you put your full weight on him? Or are you just dipping your toe into that water and just kind of testing him out? I don't know where you are, but we need to move from viable to reliable. We need to move to putting our full weight on him. And I hope with this, these nine things, you can, you can start to do that. And you can communicate to people around you that you can trust in anything else, but trusting God is where it's at. This morning, I'm going to leave that lesson in your hands, and I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, do you trust God? Ask yourself that this week and this morning as we stand and as we sing.